This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Okay, today we are talking about this study out of the United Kingdom. Half a million people that they studied for about six years. And it's linking processed meat to increased cancer risk. Eating just a strip of bacon a day, they said, increases your risk. Professor Tim Key is a co-author of the study and the deputy director of the Cancer Epidemiology Unit at the University of Oxford. He explains more. We looked at a a range of major foods and for... um, Red meat and processed meat, which includes bacon, we found evidence of an increase in risk. Looking at processed meat, we found that compared to people who said they never ate processed meat, the people who said that they ate it at least twice a week had roughly a 20% higher risk of colorectal cancer. Ouch! Just twice a week and a 20% increased risk, a higher risk, of colorectal cancer. Cancer. Now, this is a problem for a lot of people because processed meat, especially bacon, well, it's very popular. I mean, are you not a fan of bacon or are you maybe more like Homer Simpson? I'll have the smiley face breakfast special. Uh, but could you add a bacon nose plus bacon hair, bacon mustache, five <laughs> o'clock shadow made of bacon bits and a bacon body? How about if I just shoved a pig down your throat? Uh-huh. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my God. I do love The Simpsons. Here's the thing, though. Bacon has become, not just become, I think it has increased in popularity in recent years, right? We candy it, put maple syrup on it, like you name, put it on donuts, as Gordas pointing out earlier. It has had this huge explosion in popularity. And uh, not surprisingly, I guess we've also seen a rise in colorectal cancer rates. So we want to know today for our hot question of the day, how many pieces of bacon do you eat in a week? Is it zero? Is it, you know, one to three? Is it four to six? Or are you like our producer, Alan Regan, and it's seven or more? No joke. He eats a piece every day. Cast your vote for our hot question of the day. Let's check out what your eating habits are like when it comes to bacon and processed meat. You can uh, go to SimiSarah980 on Twitter to cast your vote there. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com, and you can vote online. Uh, you'll find it at SimiSarah980 on Twitter or at CKNW. We put it up about 20 minutes ago, and we've already gotten dozens and dozens of votes on this thing. Um, I said zero because I don't. on an average week, I'd have to say I, I don't eat anything like that. Um, And 44% of people who voted so far have also said zero. 35% of people have said uh, between one to three slices of bacon a week. 11% of people have said between four to six slices of bacon a week. And 10% of the people so far have said seven plus slices of bacon a week. That's a lot. That's a lot. Cast your vote on this. You can let us know what your eating habits are. How many pieces of bacon do you eat during an average week? It's not good if you're in that seven plus category. We're actually going to be speaking with Professor Tim Key, that co-author of the study, uh, coming up later on the show, and he's going to dive into more details of it. But you may remember that about five years ago, the World Health Organization said that, you know, these processed meats are bad for you. They are associated with an increased risk of cancer. Kind of put it on people's radar at that time. And now we're getting more and more evidence that shows this is something we should be worried about. So tell me about your bacon eating habits. And I'm sorry if this is going to make you feel bad about your bacon eating habits. But hey, it's in the news today. Lots of people talking about it. So we're going to be talking about it too. Tonight, we say to our fellow Canadians, let us unite together to unleash Canada's full economic potential. Let us renew the promise of Confederation as a true economic union. Let let us begin a new era in Canada, putting behind us all the barriers to trade and mobility that make us poorer. That, that is Jason Kenney speaking last night. Alberta's provincial election yesterday wasn't just Alberta's. Like, we may not have been able to cast a vote, but the rest of Canada will feel the impact of that election. And that is exactly how Jason Kenney wants it. His United Conservative Party won a sizable majority last night. In fact, the result that came in so fast that I didn't even have a chance to settle in on the couch with my popcorn and watch the results. It was over about half an hour after the polls closed. So this election then... 
He talked about the rest of Canada there, but what about BC? Is this a good thing or a bad thing for British Columbia? We wanted to get some perspective on that. So joining us now is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry. Hi, Keith. Morning, Timmy. So I guess no surprises there, right? It was pretty much as the polls predicted. Yeah, um, basically a greater difference, I think, than a lot of pollsters had it. I mean, this was a massive win for Jason Kenney. I had my, in the in the station pool at Global Edmonton, I had him pegged at 55 seats, and he came in, uh, we haven't got the final results yet, a lot of ballots still to be counted, but he was north of 60 when everything is said and done. So this is a huge mandate for him, but as you say, uh, this is one interesting, unique provincial election that the rest of Canada was paying attention to. We normally don't pay attention to, you know, Saskatchewan elections or Manitoba. This one, though, potentially has an impact because Jason Kenney is threatening, it, at the very least, uh, whether he acts on it or not, is another question, of being the great disruptor uh, in the country. And he's going to have uh, an impact. He's going after uh, John Horgan and the NDP government. He, he says he will in terms of turning off the taps of oil. He's going to clash with Justin Trudeau. He's got a lot of allies now and we talked about this before, the Sea of Blue across the country, mm-hmm. uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, potentially Ottawa, all right-of-center governments, and Jason Kennedy's going to make the most of that. And do you think, well, the things that he was saying about BC then, how much do you, of that do you chalk up to, you know, election campaign bluster, and how much of that do you think he will follow through on? Well, I think there is a, a big difference between campaign rhetoric, really aggressive rhetoric, and the reality of governing. And I I think, uh, you know, even the BC NDP found that out, uh, going from sort of an activist-bent opposition in this province to suddenly becoming a government that can't act that way. Uh, there's certain reality. So Jason Kenney talks about turning off the taps. Well, this is how it would work. He'd proclaim into law Bill 12 that gives the energy minister the power to revoke uh, uh, licenses for companies to ship uh, energy products, fuel, outside of Alberta. Well, that, that would penalize British Columbia. That would also penalize all the companies involved yeah. in that industry. So, you know, look at it from the other end of the pipeline here, folks. Does Jason Kenney really want to engage in a war against B.C., which would hurt uh, companies that are already reeling from a, a real uh, shock in the in the petrol, petroleum industry? I yeah. mean, this is uh, adding fuel to the fire. So I, I'd be surprised if he's going to do it. I think he will proclaim into law Bill 12, but I don't think the energy minister is going to be revoking any licenses anytime soon. He will want to talk to Horgan, and I think he's going to be find out. I've been saying this for some time. BC is not really doing a lot to stop this pipeline. Exactly. It's got one sort of obscure constitutional argument in court, and that's it. The BC NDP government has been granting every single permit to Kinder Morgan throughout the entire process of, the, of, this, of this project, and now to TransCanada, owned by the federal government. It's really not doing a lot to stop this pipeline. If Jason Kenney wants to look to why this pipeline is not going ahead, look at the federal government, which has been penalized by the Federal Court of Appeal for not proceeding properly, checking off all the boxes to make this thing built according to the rules. That's where his fight should be. And I don't see really what the point of picking a fight with BC is. Yeah, but don't you think that gets lost in all this too? Because I was reminding people of that earlier this week. People go, yeah, BC's being obstructionist. And I'm thinking, well, no, we're not. We haven't really done anything. No, we're not. I mean, John Horgan has vowed to use every tool in his toolbox to stop this. And we're, the joke around the legislature, it's a pretty small toolbox, and it's a really kind of a tiny tool, because it's really this constitutional argument in court that argues the a province should have control over what flows through a pipeline that's, that flows through its borders. And for years, the law has been clear. The federal government has that jurisdiction, not a province. So BC's asking for a, ju- a court of appeal to make new law here. And every legal observer I've talked to said that he doesn't see much of a chance of BC succeeding. So again, Jason Kenney sounds good on the campaign trail. Yeah, I think the realities of government are going to hit home, and he's going to continue to talk blusterly, but he's not going to act on it. But this does kind of isolate BC uh, a bit, doesn't it? Like, as you mentioned, that kind of blue wave and all these other provinces, it's going to be easy for these other provinces to pick on BC. Yes, and where I think BC is going to be at a big disadvantage over time is the NDP has promised uh, to continually, annually increase the carbon tax. It could very well be the case, depending if Andrew Scheer wins in, in the fall or not, that BC may be the only province with a carbon tax that is getting bigger and bigger every year. And that may put British Columbia at a serious economic disadvantage against the other provinces in terms of attracting investment. So that's where I think Horgan has to be a little concerned that not all provinces come any 
anywhere near the NDP's position on the tactics and strategies needed to fight climate change. And we may be an outlier on that issue, and it could be proved to be very expensive for VC. I don't see the NDP backing down on, and I think you can argue they shouldn't back down on the carbon tax, but you've got a, some pretty aggressive conservatives who are anti-carbon tax, and that's going to uh, strike a, a startling picture in Canada by, by the, this time next year when yeah. the carbon tax goes up again. And just because they're conservative premiers or conservative-leading premiers doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to agree either. I mean, you, you probably saw this thing this morning with Jason Kenney and Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec. I mean, Quebec is not interested in a pipeline, a new pipeline either. No, no, Quebec is, is very much anti-pipeline. And even though that's a right of center government, uh, they do not share the Kenny or Scott Moe's or Brian Pallister's position, the other premiers in the Prairie Provinces, position on pipeline. So in some ways, the, the you know, Kenny and his brethren are somewhat surrounded by anti-pipeline provinces for the two sort of outlets that are required, uh, one in the east, one in the west. But it, it, the, the fascinating part of this is that they do have an ally in Justin Trudeau, uh, who, who's also trying to get this, this pipeline built. What's added to the mix, though, Simi, is Trudeau sort of pushed this pipeline through Alberta with the acknowledgement from the Notley government that they would do, it would do all it could to uh, engage in a, in a climate action plan. Kenny is now abandoning that position, and that was the quid pro quo for the Trudeau support for that pipeline. So who knows where this thing is headed? Yeah. I still think uh, there's going to be a push to build this thing. I don't see Trudeau backing away from it in an election year, but I tell you, Kenny's addition to this, this table of players is going to be a fascinating thing to watch going forward. Yeah, so in the end, do you think, is this a good thing or a bad thing for BC? I think because it's disruptive, I think potentially, I think the negatives outweigh the positives, uh, just in terms of the, the threat of economic disruption. I mean, again, if he follows through on his threats, it's a bad thing for BC because it would wreak economic havoc in, in parts of the economy. I mean, he's talked in the past, and I have no idea whether he's going to follow through on this, on mandatory truck inspections at the border, you know, slowing down the commercial uh, truck yeah. traffic. You know, people forget just how the economy works. So, so much of our economy depends on the flow of goods and the timely flow of goods. And everything you eat and wear and buy comes usually through a container um, a cargo and then by a truck. And if Kenny starts playing games on that or a tourist boycott, for example, uh, banning companies from, bid, BC that, companies from bidding on Alberta Crown contracts, that's it could be quite Alberta. disruptive. Like, you know, you slow down truck traffic yep. coming from our ports to Alberta. That's going to hurt people in Alberta. And there he was in that speech, that clip that we ran to, he talking about breaking down trade barriers. The thing, like, it's almost like he's contradicting himself. Exactly. That's why I think the realities of governing are going to run up cold against the, the harsh campaign rhetoric. I mean, he said what he said, I think, to get everybody's attention and ensure he had a big majority. But again, I, I point to the NDP government here. You know, in opposition, the NDP was all about stopping the Site C dam. Yeah. All about the negatives of the LNG industry. Uh, all about banning fracking. Well, you know, they're in government and the realities take hold. Well, they're going to build the Site C dam. They're embracing the LNG industry and there's no way they're going to ban fracking because that's what heats, natural gas heats everybody's home. So rhetoric doesn't equal governing. And I think Kenny's going to run up against that. Keith, thank you for your time on this today. Anytime. Take that care. is Keith Baldry, our Global News Legislative Bureau Chief. What are voters interested in these days? Like, what is driving people to vote? In Alberta, over the last few weeks, we saw an electorate that seemed to be primarily concerned with economic issues. Anything else, and there was a lot of anything else, in the end, it didn't really register, it seems like. So is that an indicator of what's going on across the country or around the world? Does it change how political parties will approach their election campaigns? Remember, we saw some of that in BC, right, where the talk of affordability overtook everything else in 2017. So we wanted to talk more about this, find out more from someone who actually examines this for a living. Joining us now is Daryl Bricker, the Chief Executive Officer of Global Public Affairs at Ipsos Canada. Daryl, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. I know you've got this really interesting poll out where you took a look at what's happening in the UK right now. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, yeah, the, the percentage of people, I can't try to remember the exact percentage that said that uh, people should actually be charged with a crime for circulating fake news. Now, it, it is interesting, uh, but I think it was a strong majority that said that that was the case. It is interesting. We've done a whole bunch of experiments in Canada with uh, with people on the question of fake news, and you can see why it is such a problem. Because uh, 
people can't figure out what is the, generally what the difference is between fake news and real news. And it doesn't have any correlation to whether or not you're well-educated or not. We have a really hard time with it. So the potential for it to be really destructive in the political system is definitely there. Yeah, we looked, took a look at that number. It was 70%. Uh, 70% yeah. of people worried that misinformation could influence the outcome of an election or referendum. And yet, what are we doing about the problem? Well, yeah, right now we're, we're being told that in Canada that, uh, that we're going to have a, a new process for, for taking a look at uh, what is fake news. But the, the truth is it's, it's really, in some instances, in the eye of the beholder. I mean, there's a, there's a difference between um, uh, you know, news that is created uh, uh, that is basically opinion, and you might not agree with the opinion or you think it's based on facts that are incorrect, uh, but you know, would still be considered reasonable political commentary by most people. And things that are just outright lies, fabrications, you know, Photoshop pictures and all, and all that kind of thing. What the public seems to be talking about is that second type, which is really yeah. more of the, somebody deliberately trying to lie. So it'll be interesting. We haven't had a lot of test cases that I can recall in which people have actually tested whether or not somebody could be charged or there'd be some sort of sanction put against them for doing that second type of thing. But for the first type of thing, uh, it's it's becoming harder and harder to differentiate yeah. what you know is reasonable opinion and uh, and uh, really an attempt to try and influence the uh, the election outcome, even if it is more of a shading than an actual lie. How do you think this has impacted how people how people decide to actually vote? And I know you've talked a bit about this as well. Is like what are voters focused on, and has what they are focused on changed? Do you think? Yeah, it was interesting to watch the Alberta campaign, and, and we also saw it, uh, I'm talking to you today from Toronto in the Ontario campaign, where you've got, you have the people on the progressive side of the agenda that are really focusing on the issue of tolerance and uh, in identity, and then you have people who are on the more conservative side that seem to be focused, if they're really on the you know, strong partisan side on the conservative side, a similar kind of an argument. But essentially, these are very small groups of people talking to each other, yelling at each other, mostly on Twitter. Uh, or in other social yeah. media environments. What the average person is really focused on right now is the question of affordability. And not affordability going forward, but affordability in their day-to-day life right now. So one issue we've seen jump up, and particularly in, uh, you know, in Vancouver, British Columbia, is housing. They want to have some relief on the housing file. Yeah. They don't want to spend all of their time talking about whether the immigration system works or doesn't. There are people who want to talk about that, but they really are more on the, sort of the emphatic uh, progressive side or the more conservative side. The average person out there is talking about how tough it is to find a decent place to live. So the parties that are able to connect with that, the politicians that are able to connect with those meat and potatoes daily issues are the ones that are going to have the advantage. So would you say then for people who are deciding how to vote, then it has become more personal? Yeah, it's become, and that's the interesting thing about politics. It's about what's happening in your own four walls and what's happening to your family. Are you feeling like you're progressing? Are you feeling like you're getting ahead? Do you feel like your family members are getting ahead? And the answer that Canadians are giving us these days is, no, actually, we were probably doing better in the past. Right. Interesting. So that before, do you think people were voting on, like, broader issues, and now they're voting on more personal issues? Well, the, the issues that are the broader issues are filtered through a personal filter. So when we talk about, say, for example, a, a price on pollution, and one side calls it that, and then the other side calls it a carbon tax, right. then we're having a debate about what the second part of it is, or uh, I guess a price on pollution would be the first part, which is the price or the tax, and how that affects me, as opposed to 10 years down the road, how it's going to affect the, uh, the environment. Right. Which is, the, the t- it's the, that's the tough problem on the whole climate change issue, is people see, do believe that there's a, uh, you know, a climate, a, a real necessity to deal with climate change. But paying for it this moment, today, and their next trip down the road, that's when it starts to get a, turn into a bit of a problem, and that's where we are now. So essentially, this is what we're going to be seeing then, do you think, this fall, heading into the uh, federal election, that it's whatever party can make it the most personal. Yeah, I think that's what we're going to see. If anybody can sort of punch through and get onto people's doorsteps and talk to them about how they're going to make that that individual's life better, if they can make that connection, then that's probably we're gonna they're gonna have the best chance of success. Talking about issues that are, you know, huge in the world or big, you know, issues like climate change, although people if they've you know, they're concerned about it, they're concerned about it, but 
uh, you know, big issues about identity and values and all that kind of thing are not as impactful to the average Canadian voter as something that can affect their day-to-day paycheck or what's happening in their own home. You know, this reminds me of, Daryl, it reminds me of like, you know, 15, 20 years ago when it was really popular for politicians to give like rebates, to give right. checks back to voters, even, and they claimed it was good for the economy, even though it showed that it didn't really provide that much of an economic boost because people just, you know, either put it in the bank or whatever. And yet still people loved it and they still voted based on the fact that they could get a rebate. And, and that's what the federal government is banking on for, the, uh, for their climate change plan, which is to say, look, most of you, 80% of you are actually going to end up with more money on your tax return if we do this. So they're hoping that they're going to have that same kind of an appeal. Uh, maybe they will. They're yet to be seen. When do you start polling then for that upcoming oh, federal every, election? Every day. Really? Every day. <laughs> All right. We look forward to hearing more about it. Daryl, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Such an interesting conversation. That is Daryl Brooker, the Chief Executive Officer of Global Public Affairs at Ipsos. I'm going to be honest, I didn't even know that song existed. (laughs) Pretty sure my life could have uh, existed without it, (laughs) listening to it, actually. But bacon, for a lot of people, is a very serious matter because they love it so much. In recent years, we candy it, we put maple syrup on it, we put it on donuts. Oh, yeah, and we still eat it with breakfast, too. And apparently, a lot of us still like to eat it with our breakfast. About five years ago, though, the World Health Organization kind of raised a red flag when it came to bacon and other kind of preserved processed foods, meats in particular, and said that, you know, consuming too much of those could increase your cancer risk. Well, now there's this new study from the University of Oxford Oxford, that shows us that, yeah, that's actually true. They've studied and followed a lot of people, and they found that even if you eat a small amount of bacon or processed food, for instance, just a piece of bacon or ham a day could does actually significantly increase your risk. We had a chance to speak with Professor Tim Key about this. He's the co-author of the study and the deputy director of the Cancer Epidemiology Unit at the University of Oxford. Well, Professor Key, thank you for joining us today. First of all, can you tell me what it is that you looked at? What did you study? We're studying the relationship of the usual diets of people with their risk of developing colorectal cancer, which is cancer of the large bowel or large intestine. And we, to do this, we used data from the, the UK, the United Kingdom, in a study called UK Biobank, where half a million people were recruited, and they reported their diet at recruitment, and then we followed them for, on average, about six years. Wow, half a million people. So would you say that is a larger sample size than usual for a study like this? It's certainly one of the largest studies, yes, yeah. Okay, so what did you find when you looked at that, specifically when it comes to food like bacon? We looked at a a, a range of major foods, and for um, red meat and processed meat, which includes bacon, we found evidence of an increase in risk. This was not surprising because five years ago, the World Health Organization um, made a statement that they considered the evidence was convincing that processed meat caused cancer and that was for colorectal cancer and they also thought that red meat which was not processed was probably a cause of cancer. What was new about our study was partly looking at up-to-date information for people living in the UK now but also we looked more carefully than most previous studies at the actual intakes of meat when you ask people what they eat, there's quite a lot of error because it's difficult for people to estimate that. So to try and get around that, we used repeat measurements of diet in a large number of the people to, to give more you know, confidence about our estimates of, of intake. And for we didn't look specifically at bacon alone, which was your question, but looking at processed meat, we found that um, compared to people who said they never ate processed meat, the people who said, said that they ate it at least twice a week had roughly a 20% higher risk of colorectal cancer. 20%? That's, that's considerable. It, it is. I mean, it's big enough to, 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 you know, that people should know about it and governments have advice about um, how much meat eat, people should eat. It's not huge compared to some risk. You know, smoking increases the risk of lung cancer by about 40 or 50-fold. So it's hugely bigger than this. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, everybody eats a lot of people. Most people eat meat. So in terms of the population, it, it does have an important impact. So what do you classify as processed meat besides bacon? Is it is it any kind of meat? Like is it luncheon meat or deli meats, things like that? Yeah, the usual definition of processed meat is meat that's been preserved with some sort of technique involving chemicals. And the the common ones in most most countries, certainly here, probably in Canada, would be bacon and um, ham and types of sausages that have got preservatives in them. Is there a level of consumption, Professor Key, that would be considered on the safe side or no? From from the the results of our study published today, it looks as if the association is you know, approximately linear in that you know as risk, as intake goes up, risk goes up, and for the meats we've looked at, the lowest risk is in the people with the lowest intake. So yeah, that's that's mm, suggests that even small amounts might have a very small effect. But, you know, down at the low end, the effect is, is pretty small. So I think the advice for the public is really to be sensible, not eat huge amounts of these foods. Um, but, do, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't eat any at all. Do we know what it is in those foods? Is there something in the processing that might cause that increased risk? That's a really important question. Unfortunately, we don't exactly understand what's going on. Um, you know, for, as I mentioned, for processed meat, chemicals are added, so those chemicals might be involved. Um, but there are other chemicals produced when meat is cooked, and also meat naturally contains a, a material called heme iron, and all those things are under suspicion that they might contribute to the risk of cancer, but it's still not clear which it is. Well, this was a very sizable study that you did. What comes now? What what makes what do you want to look at next? I think for the for, you know for this study, we we we've produced these results now, and that's as far as we can go at the moment with this. To take the whole field forward, what's important is for people to look at this study in the context of other studies around the world. For example, see an organisation called the World Cancer Research Fund that. Um, systematically collects data published on nutrition and cancer and puts the data together to produce a, you know, a synthesis of all the evidence. So I think that would be the next step here would be to include our data in that and that'll give us slightly more accurate estimates of the, the true relationships. Right. So Professor Key, to be clear here, what we're talking about is an increased risk for colorectal cancer because we have seen those rates rising, haven't we? Yeah, well, they've risen. I mean, it depends on which country you're talking about. I'm not actually familiar with what's happening in Canada. In this country, they're not changing massively at the moment, but they have gone up a lot in some other parts of the world where, you know, some decades ago, rates were very low. And generally with um, the westernization of lifestyle, including diet, the rates of colorectal cancer have been going up in a lot of countries around the world. But places like the UK, where the rates are already quite high, they haven't been changing much. Well, Professor, thank you so much for your time on this today. That's a pleasure. That's Professor Tim Key, co-author of this study and deputy director of the Cancer Epidemiology Unit at the University of Oxford. We are learning more and more about how cancer works in our bodies, how it multiplies. And we know that not every treatment works for every person. And so researchers believe that if they can figure out how cancer multiplies in a body, that might be able to help them unlock new types of treatment. One of the ways they're doing that is to understand how the body processes sugar because cancer cells need glucose in order to multiply. Well, an immunologist at the University of Victoria has just received more than a million dollars in funding to actually look into this issue. His name is Julian Lum, and he joins us now to talk more about this. Dr. Lum, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So what exactly are you going to be looking at here? Yeah, so we're in a really uh, exciting time in cancer therapy right now because we have uh, the ability to actually retrain the immune system to seek out and destroy cancers using a new type of therapy called CAR T-cells or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. So 
when your immune system is trying to seek out these cancer cells in your body, they're at a constant, what I call, nutritional arms race. So the cancer cells are trying to use up, for example, sugars like glucose to fuel their growth and fuel their division. And when the immune cells, these CAR T cells, come into that, what I call, little ecosystem where the cancers are growing, it's a very inhospitable environment. And they're not able to capture that glucose. They're not able to take them up as well as the cancer cells do. And therefore, it tips the balance to the cancer cell. And so our goal is to really reprogram in using latest cutting-edge genomic editing technologies to tip that balance back to the immune system, to these CAR T cells, to give them the fuel right. so that they can kill the cancer cells. Man, this is so interesting. What does this also tell us, though, about how our body processes sugar? Yeah, there's a very uh, intimate connection yeah. between you know what we eat and how our immune system behaves. And um, that's just starting to get uncovered right now. We're learning more about how our diet, particularly things like the refined sugars, carbohydrates, and so forth, change the behavior of our immune system. And, and our real goal uh, overall here is to really begin to dissect how that change is happening and what we can do to reverse that so that we make the immune system actually better at uh, finding and killing those cancer cells. Are we getting better at kind of individually tailoring cancer treatment? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, the whole field of medical research is moving towards something called individualized approaches. Because even for cancer, um, just because two people have the same type of cancer doesn't mean their cancers are, are equal. In fact, we're learning more that they're they're very different, which means that we need a tailored approach for um, each individual's cancer. So if we have a better understanding, does everybody process these things the same way then? So can you take what you've learned and apply that to a, like a more global cancer treatment? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And, and the the answer is yes, that's our goal and our hope is that what we learn um, uh, right now, this technology and this understanding of how nutrition, metabolism changes the behavior of cancer cells, we can apply that information all across the board. And, and that, that will hopefully, you know, something that we we're very excited about. What does that tell us also, though, Dr. Lum, about, you talked about the, about the relationship of food and the body, but what does it tell us about how we eat and how cancer reacts to essentially our diets? Yeah, that's another very good question. You know, many, many hundreds of years ago, uh, humans were foragers, and, you know, we, we didn't have things in the, re- you know, refrigerators for, to allow us right. to eat whatever we wanted to, right? And certainly we were eating very different foods than we are now. And, and if you look at uh, in the past um, decades when the incidence of, for example, type 2 diabetes was on the rise, um, there was a con- concomitant or a, or a matched rise in the incidence of certain types of cancer. So there's epidemiological evidence that um, links what we eat, our metabolic status, if you will, and the incidence of cancers. And so um, one of the things that we want to try and do now with this new funding from uh, the Canadian Institute of Health Research is do a deep dive into how those are actually connected. So if we cut back on our sugar consumption, I know a lot of people are going to think about that, right, when they hear this story. Does cutting back on your sugar consumption change how cancer reacts in your body? Yeah, so that's also a very good question. And what we know is that in the laboratory, in the the tissue, uh, petri dishes. We yeah. know that if we change the amount of glucose that we expose to the cancer cells, their behavior changes dramatic, dramatically. So the lower amounts of glucose that are present that can can really curtail their ability to grow. It's their fuel, essentially. Well, that's that really tells us, though, a lot about what we should be eating, doesn't it? 
Absolutely. And, and diet and nutrition um, is very important um, in terms of our overall health. And so uh, being mindful of what we eat, eating in proper you know, proportions, eating the right proportions and proper exercise, those all are very important factors um, in you know, how cancers and, and in particular how our immune system is dealing with the cancer. Okay, so then we're, how long is your research going to take? Like, what's the next step here? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So we have some prototype engineering strategies. We're using some cutting-edge technologies, and uh, we're in the still some early phases of testing. But we hope, if our work is successful, that um, in the next five years, we'll be able to um, begin to bridge this and test our newly engineered immune cells in people who have cancer. Okay. So is University of Victoria kind of on the cutting edge of this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, sometimes people forget that uh, we have an amazing university here and um, we're doing some very unique and cutting edge science. And, you know, part of why we were funded from the Canadian Institutes of Health is because we have unique resources, we have unique infrastructure and we are we are one of the uh, only people in the world, in fact, probably in Canada, doing this kind of research. That's so fascinating. So, what what has taken so long, Doctor Lum, to kind of take this approach? Then, yeah, I think that's a very good question, and part of it is because I think uh, we are now learning that you know diet and healthy nutrition and exercise, all these are are important aspects of daily life, and and we're learning that if we can change those, um, we can actually have a major benefit. And so it's taken some time for the scientific evidence and literature to catch up. But I think that information is now available to us and we know what the benefits are. Now the question is, how do we apply it? How do we actually put that into motion? So I guess my other question with this is like, you're talking about what happens when cancer exists in the body, right? And is fed by glucose. But what about before that cancer is detected? Is there anything that we know about what we can eat in terms of glucose being present in the body before we get cancer and what kind of impact that has? Yeah, that's a great question. And so now you're um, moving into the area of prevention yeah. as opposed to treatment. Mm-hmm. And prevention is, is absolutely one of the key things that we can do to even, you know, stem to stem, you know, people getting cancer. And, and, uh, you know, diet is an absolutely important aspect of that. Sugar diets, uh, um, high-carbohydrate type diets, those are the fuels. Those are the fuels that, that allow cancer cells to have this rapid proliferation and growth in our bodies. And so anything that we can do to balance that, to, to reduce our sugar intakes, I think will go a long way. And, of course, that has to be coupled with lots of things like proper exercise, mm-hmm. rest, and uh, many others that uh, things that, that go along with that. Well, good luck with the research. That was fascinating, Dr. Lum. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your invitation to speak today. Well, I really learned a lot. That is Dr. Julian Lum, a University of Victoria immunologist. Well, you think people get worked up talking about bacon? Wait until we start talking about your pets, because people have a lot of questions about that. And this is something new for me. I did not know that pets can get allergies as well. I mean, I get allergies, and this is the time of year when they're really starting to ramp up. But pets also get allergies, and they may not be so seasonal. So Dr. Jennifer Adolph is back with us today, the Senior Pet Nutritionist at Pet Curian. Uh, She's here with us in studio to talk about this and your pet. And Dr. Adolph, thanks so much for being back with us. Thanks for having me. I didn't know pets could be allergic to things. They can have environmental allergies, flea allergies, as well as food allergies. How would I know? I mean, my dog sneezes. Does that tell me anything? Yeah. I mean, most dogs <laughs> will sneeze once in a while. But no, the more common signs are itchy skin. They may kind of obsessively lick their paws. Diarrhea, ear infections can be typical signs of, a, of an allergy. Okay. So a lot of them, you know, scratch all the time anyway. Like what on their skin might be unusual that we could notice? Um kind of if they they might actually lick their skin raw. Oh. Um 
Yeah, so it, it's it's more than just the you know Regular general cleaning. There's it's it's more than that. Okay. Yeah. But how would we know what they are allergic to and what can pets be allergic to? That's really the challenge. And so environmental allergies and flea bite allergies are the most common types of allergies. Food sensitivities are also an issue. So an ingredient in their food could not work well for them and they may disagree with them and so it's something to talk with your vet about if you have a concern i just realized as you were talking did you see that look on my face like i had an epiphany while you were talking (laughs) that that's what my dog has is a food allergy because we oh i had no idea now it turns out i thought my husband was just being overly sensitive towards the dog but it turns out he might have actually known something because there's only certain types of food that my dog can eat that are okay with his system Okay. Does he experience yeah, diarrhea? Di- yes, exactly. Yeah, Dietary yeah. problems. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a food intolerance. It's like in humans, you know, some people don't do well with with lactose, or um, people with celiac disease can't take gluten. So some dogs just react to certain types of ingredients, and so you just have to try to avoid those ingredients. Interesting, because we tend to we probably chalk that up as oh he ate something or they ate something bad, and sometimes that's what it is. Dogs are a little bit they'll eat anything. They'll eat anything, yeah. right? Yes. Okay, so can you test for something like this? There are um, allergy tests. They're not 100% reliable, so they're a good place to kind of start to maybe identify some potential allergens. But for for food allergies, the gold standard is really to do a, a homemade elimination diet where you really control what ingredients they get. You, you put them on that diet for a, a length of time. It has to be monitored by your veterinarian because oftentimes they're not, you know, fully complete and balanced in terms of their nutrition, right. but it's the way to identify which ingredients um, are not agreeing with them. Okay, so then you would just like every week eliminate something and see if that works? You would you would create a, a diet that's very limited in the number of ingredients that are included in the diet based on their history, based on what you think works or doesn't work, and then um, and then try them on that diet for about eight weeks to, and right. only feed them that exclusively to see if it if their symptoms are alleviated. Um, Pecurian also has what we call limited ingredient diets. So these are diets that are complete and balanced, but as, have as few ingredients as possible to try to see if that will work for the animal right. to, so that they don't react. Because some pets have a very sensitive system. Like I had my uh, the first dog that we had could eat like garbage and per- be perfectly fine. And right. this, this, this dog we have now, we love him to pieces. We've had him for five years. He can only eat certain things. Otherwise, he will get that upset stomach. And it, and it varies a lot from dog to dog. And that's why at Picurian, we, we say that we, we don't have a one-for-all philosophy. Not every diet will work well for, for every pet. Okay, so what other things uh, might a dog be allergic to? Uh, other than food, environment, or flea bites. Well, flea bites are actually a, a very common allergy. So even just one flea bite can cause quite a, a, a reaction. Really? They, can, they can be like us. They can be allergic to grass, to, to dust mites, to, to really pollen, to anything that, that we can be allergic to as well. Things so, like cigarette smoke too? Would that might Potentially, affect? yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, and I guess for, we just always ignored this before or are we just having a better understanding now of what dogs might be facing? I think so. I think awareness, you know, um, dogs are becoming more more of our family members. They're in the house more. We don't want to live with their symptoms. So <laughs> we want them oh, to be happy and healthy. There's another good symptoms then. Do they throw up? Mm, maybe, maybe that could be a, an adverse food reaction. Sometimes again, dogs just get sick but but if it's a frequent occurrence it's definitely something to speak with your vet about so when you talk about food ingredients are there like common ingredients that dogs might be allergic to like are they more allergic to like wheat or soy or corn it's it's really hard to study that the the studies that have looked at that have found that there are um, some ingredients that are a little bit more common than others but it's it's really on an individual basis when you're trying to figure out what your pet might be having an adverse food reaction to like I notice at the um, pet food store these days there's a lot of grain free uh, food product pet products right is that good like should I be picking grain free um so 
Grain-free is a nice option. Some dogs do really well on grain-free. Some dogs, some dogs or cats actually do better on foods with grains. So like the, the grain-free trend is really a, a nice option to provide more variety of foods for pets to see what they tolerate and and do not tolerate. I thought maybe that was us projecting our dietary trends onto That happens as well. That happens as well, of course. (laughs) We are talking to Dr. Jennifer Adolph, who's a senior pet nutritionist at Pet Curian. That's a family-owned pet food company that's based in Chilliwack. We're talking about potential pet allergies uh, that you may not realize that your dog has an allergy to things like cleaning products or dust or food ingredients, perhaps, things in their food. So we thought if you have any questions, give us a call, 604- 280-9898. Now, Dr. Adolph, I've got a text here. Allison Burnaby has sent us a message and she says, we recently bought some planters and my French bulldog slash Boston Terrier is eating the soil from them. And she wants to know, does that suggest that my pet is not getting her dietary needs met elsewhere? You would want to just, you know, check their diet to make sure that it is a complete and balanced diet and make sure that it is providing all the nutrients. But my suspicion is that it's not, is that for some reason that soil is extra tasty to your dog and <laughs> you you may just want to discourage that behavior. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason, right? Sometimes there's not. That is so true. So see how it goes on that. I guess it would depend on the type of food that the dog is being fed as well. Yeah. So something to look for on on your on your food is the nutritional adequacy statement. And so that statement tells you what the food has been formulated for. So first of all, whether it's a dog or a cat, and then also for the the age of the dog. So whether it's for puppy, adult, senior, or for cats, kitten, adult, senior, um, or it may be for all life stages, which means it's for an animal of any age. So that's always something to check and, and to make sure that it says that it's a complete and balanced diet, which means it has has all the nutrients the animal requires. Okay, sounds good. Hopefully that'll be helpful for Alice. We have uh, Willie on the line from Burnaby. Hi. Hi, good good afternoon. Two questions. Yeah, go ahead. One one question, one comment. The dog in the soil, my question would be to ask whether they have any bone meal in their planters. Because dogs love to go after bone meal. Good Good call. Okay, and your question? Okay, so my question isn't specific to allergies, but I've been a professional dog sitter for 15 years, and I have noticed an increase in the incidence of pancreatitis. I've also seen a number of dogs where the owners have kept them on the same processed dry kibble for years. They don't change, they don't add anything, and I'm wondering whether your doctor has seen any relationship, correlation between processed food and things like pancreatitis. Okay. All right. Thank you for that, Willie. Uh, so yeah, I guess, should you change your dog's diet up? And what do you think? So pancreatitis, one of the risk factors for pancreatitis is a high fat diet for dogs. And so um, if, if pancreatitis does develop, then a lower fat diet is what is recommended. Um if, if the food is complete and balanced, change is not required. But I always say that variety is the spice of life. And why not, you know, treat, provi- your, dogs treat your dogs to something a little bit different. For, for some animals, change is not good because like your own dog, if, if you have diarrhea or vomiting on certain foods, then, then change may not be a good thing. Yeah, but, we can't do that. We yeah. notice right away. Like if it's even one week's difference, we notice. Yeah, so it really is. It depends on your animal. My, my own dogs, I can mix it up as much as I want and they're fine and and I like doing that for them but you have to really figure out what works for your pet. And does it matter if it's, she also asked if it does it matter if it's always dry food like do they need a balance of anything else? So for dogs um, they're very good at drinking water just always providing them fresh water they will they'll meet their if their fluid requirements that way. For cats uh, they're not as good at, at sensing their hydration needs and so um, either wetting their kibble or providing a wet food um, helps them to make sure that they get in take in enough moisture interesting okay let's see here we have brian on the line from white rock hi brian hey Timmy, and to your guest uh we've got a 12 year old golden doodle who's just a wonderful dog and uh, every year she seems to have a problem in around tied around the uh, seasonal allergies where we back onto a park there's a large, large alder tree and she'll just rub the top of her nose raw basically 
um, I think it's because she's so itchy, and just wondered the doctor's oh. thoughts on that. Um, and we've heard some people say they give the dog a Benadryl or something, and that, that can help uh, a scaled-down version, obviously, for their weight. And wanted to get her thoughts on that. Okay, let's hear about that. Doctor. Yeah, yeah, definitely speak with your vet about that. There might be some medication that you can um, use, some antihistamine to, to help with that. Also, you know, try to, if you have identified that it is a particular plant or tree that is a problem, you know, trying to keep it away, away from that. Or if it is exposed to it, um, you know, rinsing their skin, rinsing their fur afterwards to try to remove the allergen might be useful. And so dogs can take an antihistamine? Yeah, um, yeah, they, they, they can, um, but that's something you would want to speak with your vet about before to make sure you use the right drug and the correct dosage. You know what I'm so impressed by, though, Dr. Adolph, is how clearly we are all closely monitoring our pets. We really are. It's great, right? isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like that people know intimately, like, oh, I think my dog is missing this or I changed this. And, and that just is, uh, do you think that's like something that we've doing more recently in the last 20 years or so? Oh, definitely. As they become more and more like our, our family members, we were really concerned about their health and well-being. No kidding. We are on it for everything. Uh, let me go to Laura Lee. Hi. Hi. I'm just wondering if, uh, and thank you for taking my call and for your guest's advice. Panus, that's P-A-N-N-U-S, which affects the eyes. Is there anything seasonal related to that with ultraviolet or is there anything that uh, foods or supplements might help? Oh, okay. Let's ask about that. Yeah, so so I'm a I'm a nutritionist, not a veterinarian, but um, that's something that you would want to speak with your your veterinarian about, as I I'm not as familiar with that condition. When in doubt, go see your veterinarian for right? sure. For sure. Uh, when it comes to pet food, though, we have seen what a huge difference that can make for so many pets. Um, but is meat okay too? Like, there's a lot of vegetarian uh, diets now out there for dogs as well. Like, do they need to have meat in their diet? What pets need is they need the full complement of essential nutrients in their diet. For dogs, that can be met through a wide variety of diets, both plant-based or or foods with meat. For cats, it's harder to meet all of their nutrient requirements without animal-based ingredients. And so... Um, First and foremost, you need to consider the the nutrient complement in your pet's food. Because, like, I feel like my dog, which is a chocolate lab, could live on sweet potatoes and bananas. That and would he, not be complete. I know, <laughs> but that's what he loves. Like, right. he can actually hear his hearing is so good. If somebody just like you know, when you peel a banana and you just that first little break that you make off the top of the my banana, dogs too, yeah, can hear that from any part of the house yep. and just come and just sit there because he wants a bite of a banana. Absolutely, that's weird though, right? Like, why no, do dogs no, love my, bananas my, so much? My dogs do that as well. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So then in talking about pet allergies, how common do you think they are? That's a hard one to assess because um, food allergies mimic environmental allergies in terms of their symptoms. And so we don't really know what the prevalence is. But um, like you said, because we are getting more in tune with our pet's health, they do seem to be coming, becoming a bigger problem. Right. And what do you do with a dog? Is this also a food problem or a diet problem if they are eating things that you really don't want them to be eating? <laughs> I think I know what you're thinking about. Yes. yes dogs, um, some dogs have a tendency to do that. It's not a, it's not a favorable I had like, habit. I had three emails from people asking me this question. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a hard one. I had one dog who did that. I could never break her of it. And there was no rhyme or reason for it. It's, it's often female dogs because they're used to cleaning up after their puppies and their litter it's kind of ingrained in them to yeah. you know keep I love, clean I also but... love that you knew exactly what I was talking about <laughs> they didn't have to say it so you're saying there's nothing you could do about that that's not food related or it's a behavioral issue more so okay. than a than a food issue it's not a dietary deficiency or anything not, like that not usually no all right. Well, see, you've given us a lot to think about today, especially when it comes to dog allergies. We thank you very much for your time and for joining us. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Jennifer Adolf, who's a senior pet nutritionist at Pet Curian. That's a family-owned pet food company based in Chilliwack. We've been talking about pet allergies. And here I was just giving my dog a hard time all the time, thinking he was just sensitive or overly sensitive. Turns out he probably does have a food allergy. I'll go home and tell him I'm sorry about that. Well, I was at a very large family event on the weekend, and more than once, I felt the need to kind of duck out of a heated political conversation, because that's what it seems like all political conversations are these days, heated. feels like everyone's always arguing to try and change somebody's mind that isn't going to be changed 
no matter what facts and figures might say. Now, surveys show that it has led to less trust in the institutions of our society, like our political system and the media as well. And that is a topic that Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin has been weighing in on. She has written an opinion piece in the Vancouver Sun, speaking out on the need for more constructive participation in our democracy. And she joins us now to talk more about the idea. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So, Your Honor, why did you decide to write on this topic? What made you do this? I have become increasingly concerned, I think like many of your listeners, uh, increasingly concerned about the fragility of democracy in the current global context. Um, you know, about the erosion of respect for democratic institutions um, and conventions um, and about the decline of incivility in, in public discourse. And uh, I think it's, you know, I have a, an important role, a unique platform, uh, and um, I feel that it's important to use it as an opportunity uh, to encourage greater cross-fertilization of opinion across the barriers that divide people in society, um, and really just to encourage us to um, engage much more constructively on some of the key issues we face in society. The challenges we face are complex. They're not, uh, they're not matters that can be solved um, simply you know, on many of these issues, there is no silver bullet. Uh, and so I think we need to be prepared to engage in discussions and, and uh, enter those discussions with a willingness to listen and a willingness to compromise our opinions and uh, compromise our, our, uh, on, uh, on the best solutions and, and to change our views when confronted with superior logic. That is what's happened, though, isn't it? We, we no longer see kind of that, not just ability to compromise, but there's no longer that willingness to compromise. Yeah, you know, and I think this is a general global trend. And uh, one of the points I made in the uh, in the op-ed piece that that you mentioned uh, is that I think it's in part a result of the rise of technology uh, and the algorithms, which actually um, create echo chambers uh, that reinforce the information that we're, see- we're receiving through technology, social media, and the internet. Uh, and this has a result of actually, I think, creating greater distance between people and contributing to a culture which is less open-minded, perhaps more fearful of difference and change. So if we're always just seeing things that we agree with or that we like, we're not open, our minds aren't staying open enough. Yeah, I I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, You know, as a person, I've always tried, I think, to you know, put myself in positions where I could engage with people whose views are different. Uh, and that's been a, a wonderful, I think, learning experience for me in many situations. Uh, and I think if we don't make that effort genuinely and sincerely, we're only ever speaking to ourselves. How do we change this then? Well, you know, and it's, it's a big question, and it's one that really haunts me because, of course, technology and the echo chambers that, you know, are, are created by the algorithms that, you know, direct our, 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 the media information we're receiving. You know, they're omnipresent. They're incredibly powerful. But I think that there are two things we can do as individuals. One is we can make a sincere effort um, to reach out to people whose views are different, and we can engage in those conversations with a willingness to listen, a willingness to learn, um, and, and not approach them initially, you know, with, with a desire to convince the other person to your point of view. You know, to take the primary objective of, of trying to understand what is it that has shaped their views? You know, there are many reasons why people hold the opinions that they do, but also with, a, with an openness to, you know, to receiving their information and being prepared to change our minds if, if, if mm-hmm. confronted with superior reasoning. So that's one thing. The other thing I think that's important is um, participating in civil society. Um, you know, I myself am a product of civil society, and I think that when you engage in the many organizations that are doing important work, uh, charitable, nonprofit work um, that champion causes and, and, and uh, um, address many of the problems we are seeing in society and in our communities, it does bring you into contact with a broader range of people. It does broaden your perspective. And I personally believe that, uh, that uh, it's the civil society organizations, the health and, and uh, the thriving nature of what we would call the third sector is, um, is a mark of a healthy democracy. 
And so I think people can um, participate constructively in our democracy by playing that role as well. You were very active in the community prior to becoming the lieutenant governor. What has changed for you since you've taken on this job? What have you (laughs) noticed more in people? Um, Well, you know, it's an enormous privilege. There's no question um, to do this work. Uh, You know, I I think I um, was quite well prepared to take on the role. There's been nothing that has really been a surprise. Um, You know, of course, I have a responsibility for the province now. And so part of part of the shift for me is spending more time elsewhere in British Columbia, which again is a wonderful opportunity to meet people and to learn about the different aspects of our of our really fabulous province. Um, I think as well do now it takes is 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 more of a symbolic role mm-hmm. uh, and 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 so I feel it's very important to use that opportunity that platform in a way that brings profile to some of the key issues and challenges we're facing so I've actually selected three um, the first really flows from my previous work uh, both professionally and in the community uh, and so it's really about promoting diversity inclusion equality, and by that I mean both economic and gender equality. The second is reconciliation. Um, I do believe that reconciliation with Indigenous peoples is is one of the most important things we can move forward on in society now, and so we have a number of things that we're executing at Government House around that. And the third is the one we're discussing, which is which is how we can contribute to a healthy democracy. So, so that for me um, is something that is is, is new, I think, in the, the range of um, interests that I've had. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess the other thing I would say that's a bit of a difference is, uh, you know, my, my week and my time is not anchored in the same way. There's no such thing as a weekend, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which is fine. It's great. Um, but, um, you know, so you kind of lose track of time in a way that, that you don't when you're in a more structured, regular environment. It's so interesting what you're saying then about this. What really sticks with me is that you're saying to not always approach every conversation as though you are right and you're going to convince the other person that you are right. That's important for, I think, all of us yeah. to learn. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's important just to develop your listening skills. Um, and, you know, if we don't do that, we never learn anything. We're just reinforcing our own opinions, which in a you know, in a in a micro uh, micro way, is the same thing that the uh, the algorithms that shape uh, social media and our media choices um, does in a macro way. So I think that's important. One thing I would like to say as well, mm-hmm. I think I think that Canada, when we look around the world, I think Canada is, um, you know, can stand in contrast to the kind of dysfunction that we are seeing emerging elsewhere, uh, and I feel very proud of that. Um, you know, I feel very proud, really, of the people I know. Uh, who step up and serve in public office. Uh, For the most part, they are exceptional people who want Mm -hmm. to serve. And I think that as citizens, we need to better appreciate the sacrifices that they make for the privilege of serving us, um, the the contribution that they make, and and the difficult challenges that they face. So I want to encourage respect um, for our political leaders uh, and and also, frankly, respect for our professional nonpartisan public service which is such a bulwark and an anchor for our society. Well, Your Honour, thank you for joining us today to talk about this. Okay, well, thank you, Simi. It's a pleasure, and I wish you all the best. That is Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin uh, talking about an opinion piece that she has recently written in the Vancouver Sun. You should check it out. It's very, very good.